week we looked at the first 10 verses of Titus chapter 2, and we noted that behavior is what reveals true belief. Behavior reveals true belief. If we want to see what a church really believes, if we want to see what this church believes, then we need to look at the, the normal behavior of the people of our own congregation. What do the members of our church look like when they live their life day in and day out? That's going to show us what we really believe. And we all know this to be true, that we, we have a tendency to live out the theology that we actually believe. We live that out day in and day out, and it's the trials of life that pulls out of us what we really believe and what we rely upon. And when, when we get squeezed by the world and we get squeezed by the trials of life, we begin to see what is actually inside of us. We see what we actually believe about theology, about God, about the scriptures. But equally important in seeing the belief of a church is understanding not just what behavior we see, but what motivates their behavior. What motivates them to believe as they do and live as they do? Motives are all important. We're not just looking for compliance to the scripture. We're actually wanting to see true-hearted motives that love God from the heart. The little story of the little girl whose parents were struggling with her standing up at the dinner table. And once they got her to sit down, she looked at them brazenly and said, I may be sitting, but I'm standing in my heart. You know that one? You have children like that? No. I mean, that's compliance, but that's not obedience, is it? Motives are most important in how we live our lives in front of God. Motives make the difference actually between a good person and a gospel-centered person. If you want to know the difference between a person who simply lives a good moral life and someone who's living a gospel-centered life, you want to know what drives them. You want to know what motivates their life. Motives that risk, that cause you to risk everything to suffer for what God values or preserve what seems to matter more. Motives will reveal that. What motivates our behavior? What motivates our behavior reveals what it is that is actually driving our lives. Is it the gospel? Can you actually say that the tenets of the gospel itself is what's motivating me to a certain kind of character? Now, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15 that were read for you, is a very concise and helpful rehearsal of the details of the gospel. If you want to see the borders of the gospel, if you want to see the highlights of the gospel, the mountain peaks of the gospel message, Titus 2, 11 to 15 is a beautiful account of the gospel. But why is it here? Why is it here in this passage at this point? Did you notice the very first word of verse 11? It is the word for. There is a rehearsal of the gospel because this gospel message is actually connected to the call to live a certain kind of character that was rehearsed in verses 1 through 10. What drives older people to live as they do, younger people to live as they do, slaves and masters to live as they do? It must be because of the grace of God that has appeared. The gospel is the motivation. That's what we want to look at today. Not just a rehearsal of what is the gospel, though that we will do that as we walk through this passage. You can't help but do that as you walk through the passage. But what is it about the gospel that actually motivates a church member? Because that's what we're talking about here. We're looking in chapter 2 at church members. Remember, chapter 1 was all about church leaders. Chapter 2 is about church members. We get into chapter 3, it'll be about citizens, church people who live as citizens in the world. But here we're looking at what do the members of a church look like? What is it about the gospel that motivates a member to live in light of the gospel? We're going to look at five different aspects of the gospel that should motivate godly character. That's what we want to see. Five different aspects of 
of the gospel that should motivate godly character. And that godly character, again, if you want to know what he means by godly character, what we're talking about when we refer to godly character, just rehearse all the qualities that you see from verse 2 down to verse 10 in chapter 2. What, what drives that kind of character? Causes people to make choices about life that fit with this kind of character. First of all, the first aspect of the gospel that should motivate godly character is found in verse 11. And I refer to it as the gospel's inclusion. The gospel's inclusion should motivate godly character. By inclusion, I'm focusing on the last part of verse 11 when it says bringing salvation to whom? All men. Salvation is not restricted to certain kinds of people. All kinds of people, every kind of person is included in the salvation that God has established for us in Christ. He refers to this salvation as the grace of God. The grace of God as it's described here, it refers to salvation as a whole. It's not one element of salvation. It's a synonym for salvation as a whole, similar to how we will see it in chapter 3, verse 7, when he refers to us being justified by his grace. Or in 2 Timothy 1, 9, he has saved us and called us. It's a saving calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. Grace is a synonym for our salvation. Grace is the whole bundle of all that is involved in salvation. But grace views all that is involved in salvation from the sovereign prerogative of God, motivated by a demonstration of the wealth of his mercy to those who deserve his wrath. That's what grace is. It's everything that we talk about in salvation that God sovereignly under his own prerogative chooses to give to people who do not deserve any of it. The grace of God highlights God and his prerogative. It tells us there is no activity we could ever do to earn the wealth that is contained in that whole bundle of salvation. You cannot go to church enough. You cannot do enough righteous deeds. There is not enough to overcome the depth of our sin and achieve the righteousness of God if God does not do everything for us and then choose to give unworthy, undeserving sinners like us all of it. That's grace. And that grace, that salvation, all of it, under God's divine prerogative, has appeared. Now, actually, in the Greek text, the phrase has appeared stands first in the sentence as if to say that what has come now, what is on the scene now that is available to every kind of person on the planet, it is available to everyone now. It has appeared. Jesus has come. He has lived the fullness of his life. He has satisfied God with his own righteousness. He has given up his life as a sacrifice in our place. He was dead. He was buried. And God raised him from the dead to overcome the power, the ultimate power of sin over us. He ascended to God where he sits at the right hand of God. All of that has now appeared. It is available to us. And it's available to all of us. There is no one in the world, there is no kind of person in the world to whom the gospel is not available. It's been accomplished. It has appeared bringing salvation for all people. What we mean by that is the gospel is inclusive. It's not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles only. It's not just for men, it's for women. It's not just for the young, it's for the old. It's not just for the master, it's for the slave. All of the kinds of people described in verses 1 through 10, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, slaves, masters, all of these are included in the grace of God that has now come to us. No one is 
excluded from that. It has come, the gospel has to save every kind of person in the world. Similar to what we find in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. And he goes on in verse 2 to describe kings and those in authority, different kinds of people. And then he goes on to say, God desires all these kinds of people, all kinds of people, all of them, to come to repentance, to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. In 1 Timothy 4.10 Paul says, it is for this that we labor and strive because we fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, meaning every kind of person that is out there, the salvation of God is open to them. Paul preached in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Every sort of ethnic, religious, social distinction is included in the gospel. When we find ourselves in the new heaven and the new earth, when we find ourselves in the glorious kingdom of God, Revelation reminds us that it's going to look like people from every nation and tribe and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes palm branches in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb that will be astounding won't it that will be mesmerizing to just see and to behold and to be a part of a sea of people innumerable every kind of person you could ever imagine crying out to God salvation belongs to our God he's not saying here that salvation means that's including all people means that all mankind will be saved he's already indicated earlier in chapter one that some deny him even while they publicly profess him no, believers, those who have faith, those who have devoted themselves to Christ and his followers, those who, those who are the people who are saved. But I want to pause here and say, how does this inclusiveness motivate godliness? How does this motivate godliness? Well, to answer that, I want to ask a question. And I want, especially for those of you who were here last week, And you were thinking through with us, and if you weren't here last week, then it's available out there somewhere online. You can find it, so go look at it and listen to it. But if you were here, and you were listening to all those traits of godliness that were listed, was there anyone here as we were walking through them, did any of you have the tendency to doubt that those characteristics could really become the characteristics of your life? Was there anyone here as you were thinking through those godly traits that began to say, well, sure, that's going to work for those people who were raised in a really good home and went to a really good church and they had it all kind of settled for them. I see how it works for them, but the way that I've lived my life and my background, I can't see that I would ever look like this. I wasn't raised this way. My parents didn't believe this. If there was anyone in the room who was tempted to say, these things don't look like me, I I can't see myself looking like this. The grace of God has appeared to save you and cause you to look like that, no matter who you are, no matter where you have come from, no matter what age you might be or social status that you come from. Friends, we we know this. If we think about it carefully, godly behavior does not come naturally to anyone, right? No one naturally produces godly behavior. You don't have to have specialized Christian backgrounds in order to ensure that you are now a candidate for the grace of God. In fact, if you trust in any way, in any shape, in any form, in the religious trappings and the models and the applications of Scripture from your parents, your pastors, your elders, your Sunday school teachers, anyone around you, if that's what you're trusting in, then it's not the grace of God that you're trusting in. 
Sure, God may providentially use many of those things, but you don't trust in tools to build the house. Anyone and everyone who comes to faith in Christ comes by grace. Pure, sovereign favor from God. It's not relegated to those who have all the trappings we think it would make it more likely that they would come to faith. No. If your life never had any religious background to it, and that's increasingly a large number of people, the grace of God has brought salvation to someone like you. If you were steeped in Bible influence, the grace of God that brings salvation has come to you too. If you had no interest of God and you actually hated the things of God, you even lived a godless and sinful lifestyle, the grace of God has come bringing salvation to you, to someone like you. If you have been surrounded by strong Christian teaching and influence and you found yourself taking all of that for granted and you found yourself despising it, despising God, turning away from everything that you've been taught and then you look back and you say, there's no way God's going to take me after seeing all the wealth of what he gave me and seeing how I've lived my life. There's no way God would take me. Yes, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to even someone like you. There's no kind of person with any sort of background who has participated in any kind of behavior that cannot find Christ and actually then thrive and live a life that looks like the character traits that we've studied. But at the end of the day, it is only the grace of God that produces that. Only the grace of God. Only the grace of God. That is the gospel message, isn't it? Only God's grace can take a sinner and make them righteous. Sinners have no ability to even contribute to their own righteous standing before God. Christ must accomplish it all. God must look at you and say, I see you as if I see my son, not because you have done anything, but because I, under my prerogative, have shown you mercy and have given you the righteousness of my son. That's the only way you have hope, isn't it? Someone's going to perhaps retort, does that mean that the gospel characteristics that are mentioned there require no effort on our part then to pursue? No, in fact, it does require discipline. It does require effort. It, it requires a particular gospel-drenched motivation and dependence on the grace of God. But to be right in God's eyes, to be accepted by God, is not achieved because of the good things we do. It's given to us regardless of them. And because of that grace, we then with all of our might pursue discipline and we pursue the character that God has called us to because we're confident God has opened our eyes to see the grace of God and the salvation of Christ it has appeared the grace of God and salvation destroys any sense of self-centeredness it moves us to serve all humanity regardless of ethnicity or social status. It crushes every form of racism. Saving grace pushes us to live in such a way that all and any can see the gospel's effects clearly displayed in our lives. So never doubt when you read through the call to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith or to live a life that is not enslaved to much wine and teaching what is good to be kind, to be subject to those that God has put over you, to be sensible, a good example, to have purity in doctrine and dignified, the call for you to be sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, to be just, to be good. Yes, that can characterize your life because of the grace of God, only the grace of God. I belabor that because it is too easy for us to take it for granted. If you ever want to rehearse your sin, sometimes it's good to do that, not so that you despair, 
in what you have done, but so that you see again how deep, how broad, how high, how wide the grace of God has been to you. Despite your best efforts, the gospel's inclusion should actually motivate godly character. He saved you so you would be like this. Let's look at a second aspect of the gospel that should motivate godly character among the members of the church. It's found in verse 12. We saw the gospel's inclusion. Now look secondly at the gospel's instruction. The gospel's instruction should motivate godly character. He said, well, I, I, I thought you just said it's grace, not, not instruction telling us then what to do. Oh, it's grace and grace tells us what to do. But listen, you, you do know the key to all of this. Anything that God tells you to do, his grace empowers you to do, right? He never asks you to do anything that his grace will not give you the ability to do. So all of the instruction that is included here comes from the grace of God. But it is the gospel's instruction, and we need to be careful when we talk about the gospel Some would assume that the gospel character that we're talking about here, especially the characteristics we described in the first 10 verses, that just merely flows from a message that is intellectually believed and perhaps even affectionately embraced but not practically pursued. And I I hear people that the pursuit of sanctification or that is becoming like who you really are in your position, it's all about just staring more at the person of Christ and that's it valuing more of Jesus, which I want you to do with all your might. I want you to always be trying to elevate your vision of Christ. That is true. But at the same time, if that vision of Christ that's being elevated does not cause you to practically discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, then have you really understood what grace has called you to do? You see that in verse 12? Verse 11 tells us the grace of God has appeared. And what has the grace of God appeared to do? It instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. It instructs us. It tells us how to live. It tells us how to live because we have received grace. Not in order to gain it or even to keep it. This word instruction is a word that means to educate, to discipline. That's the idea behind the word instruct, to educate or to discipline. God's grace is not merely a force that acts upon us. If you're waiting to overcome your sin by just saying, okay, God, take it from me. I hear people say this oftentimes. I've just prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed and the Lord has not removed this from me. And I'll say, well, well, that's good. I'm, I'm so thankful you're praying and trying to be dependent on God what are you what are you doing oh well I I'm not a doer you know I believe in the gospel the gospel is not about doing the gospel is just about believing well do you not believe it enough to do something with it what are you doing how are you pursuing what God calls you to because he's given you his grace and called you to live a certain way. The gospel, yes, is all of God, but it calls you to live a certain way dependent on that grace. It's not one or the other. It's both and. There's both a positive and a negative side to this instruction too. Do you see that? Negatively, it says to deny, to deny, or literally in the Greek text, it says having denied, you are to live a certain way. Because you have denied certain things, you now pursue another kind of living. The gospel calls us to deny certain things, like ungodliness. Ungodliness, all that is contrary to the character and affections of God. Whatever is opposite to what God sees as righteousness, we look at to deny in ourselves. You say, well, you need to tell me what that is practically. You need to read your Bible personally and then think about your life personally in light of what you see reflects the actual character of God because this is going to look very different with very different people because it gets down to the motivations of the heart, the issues of the heart. And 
by the way, if I gave you a list, you'd try to make everybody obey the list in the same way, right? That's how we form legalism. We form our practical lists and say, do you meet the list? Do you apply the Bible the way we say to apply the Bible? And it can only be applied this way with these characteristics. And that's how we know whether or not you are opposing ungodliness. I wish it was that simple. I really do. Because I'd give you a list. It'd probably look like all the things that I don't like. And you'd say, well, what about? And there might be gray areas. I'd say, no, I've got my list. Right? And we, could, we could build a whole church around the list. What is ungodly? You'll know that when you're reading the word and you're seeing your life illumined by the spirit and you put them together and say, this is contrary to what, what God would desire. This is contrary to the nature of God. But it's not just ungodliness, not just activity that is not consistent with God. It's also, do you see it in the text, worldly desires, worldly desires, desires that are more reflective of a godless culture than of God himself. Now, I think this is a real challenge for our culture today, because in our culture today, we tend to think that if I desire it, that means it's natural, and if it's natural, it can't be overcome, It's just a part of who I am. It's a desire. It's internal. It's what I want. And what I want now becomes who I am. Have you noticed that? Desires now in our current culture are identity. But that isn't the way the Bible speaks of it here. There are worldly desires. And can I just say to you that for all of us in the room, worldly desires are natural. It is what you will naturally feel and want and be inclined to. They are natural. And the gospel says you must deny them. It doesn't say they won't be there. You must deny them. You must put them down. Having denied them, you pursue a certain kind of life. Even what you desire. Desires that flow from a world-centered heart are to be denied These desires are inclinations that can't and they should not, in some people's minds, change, but they must. I think it's good again. Nothing specific is mentioned here. Just this broad term, worldly desires, desires that fit with the system of the world. What is is that in you? I have to have this in order to be fulfilled or satisfied. I must receive this in order to be satisfied. I see it in media. I hear it from others. They have it and they look happy. What desires do you have when you look at the world? You you say, I have to have that. That's what we're to deny. You say, that sounds like such a hard life. But the grace of God has appeared, hasn't it? And he does help you overcome those desires and replace them. Friends, let's think about it somewhat practically. What you fuel your heart with from the outside, ideas about what makes an acceptable image to the world? What will make you famous or popular, enjoyed? What will make you feel loved? That's a big one. You ever heard that popular idea about love languages and you got to find yours and make sure your spouse knows it so they love you right? That can be nothing more than self-idolatry. Did you know that? I say this is how I will be loved and if you don't love me this way then I don't feel accepted by you. When you fuel those desires with thinking that doesn't flow from the gospel itself you will find those desires dominating and here's what tends to happen when you do that. You're never satisfied. You're always frustrated. Regularly, just frustrated you get one step they do it one time you get what you want and that desire 
doesn't go away. You want more and more of it because you're not denying the desire, the fuel it craves. If you keep telling yourself that a certain body image is going to give you satisfaction, you're going to be disappointed always, aren't you? The mature folks in the room just said, God help us, yes. If you keep telling yourself that people are going to accept you for a particular image that you have created for yourself on social media, etc., when they find out the truth, you're going to find a deep sense of loss. If you keep telling yourself that your security can only be assured with a certain amount of money in the bank, and so that drives you to work as you do and make decisions as you do that, that choke out life from the people around you, You'll never have enough. If you keep telling yourself that anything other, anything, anything other than the gospel message about the righteousness of Jesus Christ being the only means of any real, meaningful, eternal acceptance, you will find it almost impossible to deny worldly desires. Think carefully about the fuel you consistently consume that causes your soul to love what the gospel came to replace. And start replacing that with a different kind of fuel. Fuel what the gospel loves. Pour into your heart, your mind with music and images and people and conversation and relationships and fellowship. Obedience to the word that hems you in by the grace of God so that you live as he intended you to live. You have to deny certain things. But more positively, this instruction says that you also are to live, not just to deny, but to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Meaning, this age before the Lord Jesus Christ returns. To live sensibly, that is, to see things the way God sees them. That's what is sensible. To see what God sees, to know the world as God has made it to be known and seen. To live righteously. What does God consider to be righteous? The gospel calls us to that kind of living. What is right in the eyes of God? I should pursue that. To live godly. Do I live in such a way that centers God at the hub of my life so that when I encounter people and they leave my presence, they have some sense of the taste of God left behind? That's godly living. What this means is that if the gospel actually instructs us to deny a certain approach to live and live in a particular manner, we have to give thoughtful, careful, intentional ways in which we live we have to give attention to it not in order to gain grace and favor from God because but because he has chosen to grant it to us the gospel is inclusive of all kinds of people and it instructs us there is something you must put off there is something you must put on in regard to your desires and your living there's a third aspect of the gospel that should motivate godly character among the members of the church. Third, the gospel's expectation should motivate godly character. The gospel's expectation. So the grace of God has appeared and that grace instructs us and notice verse 13, that grace of God that has come causes us to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. The return of Jesus is just as much a necessary plank in the gospel message as is his death and resurrection. So his, his return should motivate us. You remember when we studied about the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, one of the ways that the Apostle Paul knew that the gospel had come to them and that they had really welcomed in the gospel is because they were expecting him to come. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, the people who, who have heard the report about the conversion of the Thessalonians, they report about us, what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols 
that's denying certain things and turning to God for other things, to turn to God from idols, to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven. It's a part of the gospel. We're waiting for him to come back. We're living in such a way now that we live expecting him to return, eager for him to return, loving the thought that he's going to come back. You say, I, I see how that helps us not love the present world because the next one's going to be better. Well, it's even more than that. How does the second coming actually motivate actual godly character in the here and now, in the present age? How does the future motivate present living? Well, it is that second coming that should motivate present anticipation through a God-centeredness, an expectation that he has coming. I mean, listen, listen to the, the language here because I, I wonder if this is really how we talk about the coming of Jesus. It is a blessed hope. What's the word blessed mean? What's a good synonym for blessed? Well, just colloquially, we could say happy. It is a happy hope. It is a hope for something in the future that causes a sense of satisfaction, joy that can't be easily steeled now. It's a blessed hope, a happy hope, a hope that instills happiness. Notice another way it describes it here. The appearing of the glory. You ever seen people standing in line for the concert or the game and they are primed to get in? The hype music starts at the game. All the, the pre-concert things go on to build the crowd's anticipation. And as soon as whatever celebrity walks onto the platform, the place goes wild, right? Because you've just seen the appearance of the glory. Do you ever find yourself expecting Jesus that way? With this kind of expectation that you cannot wait, you feel the nervous anticipation inside your soul building up, just longing for that moment when you see him and you see glory, the appearance, the actual, your eyes see it and behold it and take it all in. That's, that's what's described here, the appearance of the glory of God of our great God as if he is the most magnanimous superstar of our age. And who is this God? Christ Jesus. Isn't that a great statement of his deity? The appearance of our God who is our savior, Christ Jesus. Have you ever thought about how it is that our current celebrity culture steals from our expectation of the coming glory of God? Have you ever thought through that? We become so enamored with the glamour of television and movie personalities and sports stars and political leaders that we tend to be more enamored with that than we are about the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. The glory of the culture easily grips the motivations of our lives because it's, it's celebrated so extensively. Have you noticed the technological machinations of our world to get your affections hyped for temporary glory? And it's all of us. It grips us all. And I wonder how much does that steal away from our actual expectation of the splendor of God appearing? I don't think we need any more illustrations of how imaginary cultural fame really is. I mean, what does the movie star look like when they don't have their makeup on? You. And me. 
when the, when the movie star is not, they don't have the personal chef and the constant training. What, what, what does their body look like when they're not making the movie? Yours. You say, I don't know about that. I don't know. They've got to look better than me. No, you, you, you see all of that. It's, it's out there for, you to be, for it to be seen. You, you see them when they're not in their celebrity status. They, they just look plain, ordinary. I, I mean, think about politicians and even sports stars. I mean, there's a Hall of Fame. I get it. I get it. There's a Hall of Fame. Why is it there? To try to make the memory of some celebrity last because it so easily fades, doesn't it? The reality is you and I could go into any Hall of Fame and the one, the people that we are most going to look for are the people we know of in our lifetime. And we might know some stories about others, we might learn some things, but it won't be as mesmerizing because fame fades over time. It doesn't matter if you've got a statue. Or think about going through Arlington Cemetery and seeing all of the national heroes of our country and just thinking about the fame and the glory that is attached to that. But the reality is they're all dead. They're dead. The way the celebrity of our society has grasped our expectations and imaginations and all of the illusionary promises that celebrity makes and the way we are mesmerized as we quote the statistics and the information available to us about celebrity. I wonder how much it's stealing away from us an anticipation of the coming of the glory, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. I think what Peter describes in 1 Peter 1.8 about his anticipation of the coming of Jesus is very difficult for most of us to actually relate to because it's not, he is not a celebrity we expect like others. Do you know 1 Peter 1.8? No? Jot it down. I'm going to quote it to you. Peter said, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. I think Peter had no greater celebrity in his heart than Jesus and that caused him to have inexpressible joy when he talked about how much he loved him and thought about his appearing. I, I just don't think we even really want to know what would happen in our hearts today if the earthly Jesus and Patrick Mahomes were in our building at the same time this morning. Who would we be looking at most? You wonder, don't you? Or whoever. You're like, I hate football. Uh, then who's your celebrity? What, what political person, if they walked in here, you would just be, did you know who was here today? Did you see? There's, you see kind of a shift in the congregation. These folks who sit over here all the time started to move over here because they're sitting in this section. It happens. Don't let anything take away from the expectation of Christ. What, what would fuel and build in you a love and longing? And, and here's the thing, that kind of longing, the more that it is stoked, you know what it produces in you? Godly character. Godly character. Perseverance, hope, sensibility, Christ-centeredness, because that's what means most to you. The expectation of the coming of Jesus should be so electric within us that we're, we're those people standing in the line that cannot wait for the concert to start, to see him come out and show himself and the place goes wild. I mean, Revelation is just that scene. Revelation 4, the place goes wild. 
all heaven, all earth, everything above the earth and under the earth goes crazy when the Lamb of God takes the scroll. Think about the coming of Christ if you want to be motivated to live a gospel-centered life. Number four, the gospel's application should motivate godly character. It is inclusive. It instructs us. There's a certain expectation that comes with the gospel that drives godly character, but also the gospel's application should motivate godly character. That's verse 14. This great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who is coming, who will appear, it is he who gave himself for us. Do you see it in verse 14? He gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. I wonder, how often do you find yourself prayerfully meditating on the way God atoned for your sin and then applied it to you so radically personally? I mean, your particular sins, you see them and they relate to you specifically and you see how God applied salvation so specifically to you. Do you ever meditate on that? How often do you meditate on it? If you want, again, to think on your sin, there's a healthy way to do it. There's a healthy way to review the sins of the past and even your present sins if you can see them in light of how God has now applied the work of Christ to your life. That you meditate prayerfully on that. Well, I want you to consider a few theological lozenges that we could just roll around in our mouth for a minute and dwell on and think on and get the taste of more specifically. What does he point out here? How does this kind of meditation affect our our life? Well, first of all, We serve God because we were bought by God. Do you see that? If I want to see godly character, I serve him because I have been bought by him. He gave himself for us to redeem us to be a people who are zealous for good deeds. To redeem us. This is the language of slavery again. It's the language of slavery. It is the realization that we have that we were enslaved to our godlessness and our sin. And God redeemed us. And he paid everything that was necessary, not just to justify all that we had transgressed. He paid what was necessary to own us for himself so that we would live for him, so that we would serve him. We serve him because he bought us. We belong to him. Again, that's such a healthy way to think about sin. I think you should sometimes just dwell on how bad is your sin in front of a holy God. How desperate is it? How wicked have you become? What have you taken for granted under the grace of God? How terrible is it? He paid the whole price to redeem you from it. All of it. All of it. Dwell on that. You can't do anything past, present, or future that he did not pay for to own you. Ever. So you serve him. Secondly, we live holy because we were cleansed. Why do we live a holy life? Why do we live a life that looks like Christ? Because we were cleansed. So he did not just redeem us, but notice also He redeemed us to purify for himself a people. To purify. This is an Old Testament concept of worship. The sinful person who came to bring their sacrifice to the tabernacle or to the altar, they they had to not only make restitution for their sin against God through the death of an animal in their place instead of their death, but they had to be made pure. There was a cleansing ritual that would go along with it. They had to be purified in God's presence, not just pay a price, but be purified. And that's exactly when 
the priest would wash the entrails of that sacrifice that stood for you. It reflects the purifying work of God in the sacrifice. Christ purified you completely so that you are acceptable to him, so that you could come before him. If you're not pure, where do the impure people in Israel, where do they go? Outside the camp. Why? Because God is inside the camp. So you had to go outside the camp and wait until your days for purification were done. Then you could come back close to God. Do you remember that? Do you remember what we studied in the book of Hebrews? When Jesus came and the sacrifice was made once for all, what did God do? He made you so pure that he took you from the outside of the camp and continually and forever brought you near. You remember that phrase? He brought you near. He purified you so you could be in the presence of God all the time. Acceptable. Blameless. If he purified you and sees you as that, what kind of life then would you live if you dwelt on that? A holy life. Third, we live holy not just because he has cleansed us, we are devoted to him because we are unique. We're devoted because we are unique. Another element of the gospel you find in verse 14, you see he purified, I love this language, for himself a people for his own possession. As if we, were, we belonged to him uniquely. He did everything he could to bring you in, not just close, but make you his own. Again, that's language used to describe God's relationship in the old covenant with the nation of Israel. They would be God's unique people. And can I just remind you, why was Israel to be God's unique people? So they could show all the world what it looked like to be the possession of God. Was that to wag their finger and say look who you're not no it was to point the rest of the world to say here's who you will be if you follow God all the rest of the nations of the earth were to see Israel's the unique possession of God and see this is we also could be that possession the promise was not merely for Israel but the blessing would come Genesis 12 to all the nations of the earth which is us He's brought us to be his own people. 1 Peter 2.9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You belong to him. What's the result of that? He redeemed us. He cleansed us. We're unique to him so that we'll be a people zealous for good deeds. Do you see how this aspect of the gospel, this application of the gospel to you causes you to be zealous to do good deeds? Let me wrap it up with one final one. Consider the fifth and final aspect of the gospel that should motivate godly character among those who are members of the church. Fifth, it is the gospel's proclamation. The gospel's proclamation should motivate godly character. Verse 15, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. You know what he's calling Titus to do? Preach. Preach. You know what he's calling church members to do? Listen. Right? If, if Titus is to preach, someone must listen. Preach to whom? The flock, the congregations on the island of Crete. What is the congregation to do? To listen. Why? Because that produces a people who will follow with their life. They need to be exhorted. Speak. It's not enough just to be an example, by the way. Yes, pastors must be an example. They must speak. You need to hear the word of God. You need to hear it week in and week out, over and over, when it produces goosebumps and when it doesn't. When it's thrilling to you and when it's not. When you find it relevant and when you don't. You need to hear it over and over. Never, ever, ever minimize what hearing the word of God 
does to your soul, even when you don't perceive it. It has eternal effect, even when we don't even perceive it. Speak this word. I think he's describing these in both public and private ways. Again, he says there, let no one disregard you. So I'm, I'm gathering that there are some who might. What should he do? Go to them. So he's to speak in the public and he's to meet with people individually. He's also to exhort, that is to urge people, to plead with people, to persuade with zeal. Preaching is not a dispassionate activity. We're not here to perform, but we're also not here to merely dispense information. We preach to urge the use of the word of God, to say we need our lives to run up into the brick wall of the word of God all the time. We have to have that publicly and we need it privately. That's discipleship, that's meeting with one another, that's caring for each other, exhorting one another personally. It requires exhortation urging, pleading sometimes with someone, do not continue down that road. Please pursue this direction. It also requires reproof. Do you see that? Reproof. The same word used in chapter 1 verse 9 of the elder who rebukes those who contradict the word or in chapter 1 verse 13 of the need to rebuke sharply so that people will, who hear the word will be healthy and sound. Reproof is not an excuse for a preacher to angrily vent at people nor is reproof an opportunity for a parent or a friend to get something off their chest because they feel offended reproof says I seek your health first and your happiness ultimately under that health so sometimes I have to point out the error which means that I need that too and you need that too there's all of us need that piercing work of the word done to our life on a regular basis because we don't always see what has to be changed. We don't see what others see all of the time. Did you notice that these words here, speak, exhort, and prove, these are the words of preaching? 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul told Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, and listen to the words he uses. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience all kinds of instruction because you know that people will naturally move away from the word so you have to constantly pull the drifting boat back against the the tide current you have to why why is verse 15 necessary for us why do we need that because we're not glorified yet that's why we need it. We're not glorified. Because our hearts are purified, yes, in the presence of God so that he never rejects us. He always receives us and accepts us. But our present experience has not yet caught up to our position, has it? And we need the regular public preaching and the constant personal discipleship from others. Christianity is a corporate kind of living. It requires our investment in each other because our spiritual connection to each other as the body of Christ is real. Every Christian tends to either think less of their progress than they should or more of their progress than they should and we need the balance of the people of God around us to see the reality. That's why we need loving, patient friendship of others. We need the constant preaching of God's word over our hearts that's the gospel motivating us the gospel motivating our behavior what motivates your behavior why are you living as you are I want you to think of something as we close and as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's table could you, could you take this rehearsal of the gospel and think of a way to meditate on its elements daily? That's why we read the Bible every day and we urge prayers so that we're thinking on the word daily and how our life intersects with it so that we would 
deny certain worldly pleasures and we would pursue a righteous kind of living. How do you expand your, go- your understanding of the gospel? How do you expand it? Are, are you fine with where it is? You say, ah, I, I, I've got it, I've got the elements. Now, have you ever plumbed the depths even further? Is there theological reading you could do that would dig you deeper into the things of God? I, I mean, the, the men who meet with us on six o'clock every Tuesday morning, we've, we've, been trying to, we've been trying to finish our study on the doctrine of salvation and it's so hard to do because there's so much more to unpack and we feel like we're just skirting on the surface of it because there's so much more to think through. What are you doing to expand your understanding of the gospel? Because it will lead you to live a different life. How often do you make the gospel and its high points as we've seen them described here a part of the way you pray regularly? Do you pray through these aspects so that you're not just living a do-it-yourself kind of Christian life but a life that's so dependent on the expression of the grace of God in the person of Christ? You're praying through it. God make this a reality. Do you see the details of your life in light of what Christ has accomplished so that you're not driven by what other people think? You're not driven by what others will accept. You're not even driven by what you say you must have to be acceptable. Do you rehearse these truths with your church? Do you? In how we sing, do you meditate on the songs as we sing them out loud? When someone's leading us in prayer, are you thinking through and praying those things together with God and thinking through what they're saying about God's word and its application to where you are in your life? We sing them, we pray them, we hear them preach from the scriptures and then we we just pray that it, it just constantly moves among us through the rest of the week as we contemplate and rehearse all of these things together and talk about its use in our life. I don't know how you can live a godly life and not be connected to a local church as a member. Because that's what drives gospel-centered living. This is all about being a part of the body of Christ. This is how we live with one another. It's what drives us to help each other look at our own motivations for living. Is this how you live? Let's bow for a moment before the Lord. Father, we pray that you would begin to plumb the depths of our own motivation. Sometimes we can't even understand them, but we pray that the Holy Spirit will begin to enlighten our hearts. To enliven our eyes to see what we need to see. Help us to hear what is most helpful to our soul to be weaned away from the trappings of the world. We know, Lord, it is one thing to enjoy the world that you have given us. It is another thing to be enamored with it. You are to be the one we are enamored with. And to enjoy you in all things is different than simply enjoying the world that we are in, which is so distracting to our soul and does not cultivate God-centered living. So we pray that our congregation will be a people who are motivated by the grace of God that has come. And we see every kind of person coming to Christ. We pursue the instruction to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this age. Lord, I pray that there would be such a longing and expectation, joyful, inexpressibly joyful hope in Christ in the coming of the Lord Jesus that we are eager, brimming with enthusiasm for his coming. And that we would rehearse over and over how you have redeemed us and you've purified us and we are yours and you would cause that reality to make us zealous to live a life that reflects your character. We pray that we would never disregard the word. We would let it pierce into our heart and our soul. Listen to it regularly. Let it reprove us and exhort us and urge us for the sake of your name, for the glory of your name. 
Father, I pray for those in this room who do not know Christ. I pray for those who have never given themselves over to become a disciple of Jesus. Would you show them how much you've done, how kind you are, how magnanimous you are in the application of your divine favor towards those who will turn from sin and embrace you? Open their eyes to see it. There's a way to live that is constantly in its end frustrating and disappointing and there is a way to live that is eager and expectant and overcoming and draw them to Christ. Not the things of this world but to Christ who made this world and all that is in it and will remake this world so that we live in it and enjoy him appropriately. Lord, we look forward to what you do among us to cause us to live godly lives. And as we come now to remind ourselves of our Savior and openly declare ourselves to be the disciples of Jesus Christ and the church of the living God through the Lord's table, remind us of how precious the death of Christ is. Remind us how powerful the resurrection of Jesus is. Remind us of how present his rule is as he reigns from heaven. Remind us of how joyful it will be when that rule is brought to earth in fullness. I pray that all those thoughts would be in our hearts as we remember Christ and as we declare him openly together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.